we ask big questions. We ask questions about injustice, about life issues, both on a personal level and on an international level. And this morning we come to one of the smallest books in the Bible, and yet it tackles some of the biggest questions in life. It's the book of Nahum. And one of the things I've enjoyed about preaching through the Bible one book each Sunday is I get to be an advocate for books that we know nothing about. If we were to pool all of our ignorance, I doubt whether we would come up with a whole lot on the book of Nahum this morning. But I'm here to tell you it contains some big answers to life's biggest questions. My grandmother's favorite verse is in the book of Nahum. Now that says something. My grandmother was the sweetest lady you would ever meet. Um, she would always give us bubblegum money or ice cream money. Um, she'd always stick a one or a five in our hand every time we were together. But she was just a nice, kind person. And everyone loved my grandmother. Well, her favorite verse was, The clouds are the dust of the Lord's feet. And as a seminary graduate, she would tell me, she would never see a cloud without saying, Fred, the clouds are the dust of the Lord's feet. That's what the Bible says. And I would say, okay, I don't think so. Because I didn't know that verse was in the Bible. Well, it is. It's Nahum chapter 1, verse 3. The clouds are the dust of the Lord's feet. Now, that verse, the theology in that verse will take you a long way. If that's all you knew, think about it. First of all, how big would God have to be for the clouds to be the dust of His feet? And if you're going to tackle life's biggest questions, you better have answers from a big God. You can tell by listening to a guy preach how big is his God. There are way too many preachers who preach about a God who's about that big. The God who will help you out of troubles. A God who's with you all the time. A God who does a lot of things that are accurate. But it doesn't necessarily mean that he believes in a big God. Nahum believed in a big God. The second thing, if the clouds are the dust of the Lord's feet, what kind of perspective does he have in life? He has a higher perspective. A God who can make sense out of all the injustices of life. If you've had a suicide in the family, if you've gone for months without a paycheck, if you have been victimized by racism or bullying on a playground, if you've been a victim of rape, or you've had a drunk driver take a life of a family member, For you, you've got big questions. How can this happen? How could a loving, all-powerful God allow those kinds of atrocities to happen in my life? Those are big questions. And on the global stage, how could an all-powerful God who is just allow so many of the atrocities that we have seen in our lifetime 
to take place. I think of, and I made a short list. Mussolini took between 300 and 400,000 lives of innocent people. Stalin, who seems to have perhaps set the record between 20 and 60 million lives. Hitler, we know about the 6 million Jews, but there were an additional 10 to 15 million others who were not Jews that were also killed by Hitler. Idi Amin, 3 to 400,000 people. Pol Pot, two to three million, some say as high as five or six million in the killing fields. Saddam Hussein, upwards of a million people. And then bin Laden, who took, in addition to the four to five thousand American lives, brutally, upwards of a hundred thousand around the world through terrorism. And we're living in our day, all of these names are names that we're familiar with. We know the history books. And we look at the world scene and say, God, when will there be justice? How long will this kind of horror, killing, take place on our planet? If you've ever asked any of those kinds of questions about the justice and the mercy of God. The book of Nahum is for you. Would you open it with me, please? If you can find it, I'll give you 25 minutes to find the book of Nahum in your Bible. It's one of the only three books written to non-believers. The entire book of Nahum was written for those outside of faith. The entire prophecy is what's going to happen in pagan Nineveh in the nation of Assyria. The other two books, of course, Jonah was written uh, again for Nineveh, but 50 years prior. And then there's the book of Obadiah, written entirely for those outside the community of faith. But while they were, these are prophecies given to those outside of the people of God, they were comforting to the people of God. Let me give you a little history. <clears throat> Assyria, the nation of Assyria, of which Nineveh is the capital, conquered the northern kingdom in 721. That's the northern kingdom of Israel. It conquered the northern kingdom. Then you remember the prophet Jonah went to what city? Good. You made me feel good on that one. Jonah goes to Nineveh, the same city that Nahum is now preaching to. But Jonah went there... 50 years, 75 years earlier. He preaches destruction and repentance. But Nineveh repents. Then they went back to their old evil ways. They went back to their idolatry. They went back to their violence. For those of you history buffs, you may recognize the names of Sennacherib, Shalmaneser, and Sargon. Those were the three key leaders of the nation of Assyria from 850 B.C. to 610 B.C., under whose leadership it became the world empire. But like a leech or like a parasite, Nineveh and the nation of Assyria grew 
at the expense of everyone else. Because every month they were sending warring parties, terrorists, to go pillage the surrounding nations, bring back the loot to fund their own country. That's how they gained world dominion, is at the expense of everyone around them. They were an evil, bloodthirsty, warring nation that did against the northern kingdom what they had done against all the other surrounding kingdoms. And now, after Nineveh repented under Jonah, went back to their old ways, now Nahum, the prophet, is preaching judgment a second time, but now the window of opportunity for repentance has closed. This is now final. And within 86 years of Nahum's prophecy, every word was fulfilled. The Medes and the Babylonians marched against Assyria and completely destroyed the capital city of Nineveh, which they said was impenetrable. They had a hundred foot tall walls that were up to 50 feet wide with hundreds of towers towering above that. There was a moat that surrounded the entire 80 mile wall that was six feet deep with water, 20 to 50 feet wide, going all the way around the city. They thought no one could get in. But Nahum preaches this word of prophecy against Nineveh. Now, with that background, the questions stand before us. The big questions of life. If God is a God who is supposedly loving and just and kind, how can He allow this atrocity to continue? Nahum addresses that question. How can a God who is all-loving exercise such justice and vengeance? How can that happen? Nahum addresses that question. Now let's take a look. First, at this big God of Nahum. This God who is so big that the clouds are the dust of His feet. God is described in the book of Nahum in great detail. Chapter 1, verse 2. He's jealous avenging, wrathful. Verse 3, in fact, let me read Nahum chapter 1, verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His ways way is the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds of the dust of His feet. Now, when it says that the Lord is slow to anger, it does not say that He never angers. Sometimes we've forgotten that. If God never got angry, it would say that. The fact that He's slow to anger, what, he, what it means is, is He wants to give every possible opportunity for people to repent. And sending Jonah is a prime example of His mercy on a bloodthirsty, cruel, oppressive, tyrannical nation. Now, with that understanding, we go on in Nahum and look at some of the other ways God is described in the book of Nahum. Verse 7, chapter 1, He's good. He's a refuge and He's caring. Chapter 2, verse 2, He is restoring. The word Nahum means comfort. 
And for those who have suffered injustice, to know that there is a day of reckoning that will level the playing field, that will bring justice, brings great comfort to those who have been abused. To know that while the playground of the world scene may be cluttered with bullies, there is a caregiver over the playground who will take care of the bullies. It's interesting, Jesus performed many of His miracles in the town of Capernaum. You ever heard of Capernaum? It's Capernaum. It's a compound word. Capern is village. Nahum is Nahum. It was the village where Nahum lived. Capernaum. It was there that Jesus healed and rose from the dead the synagogue's leader's son. It was in Capernaum that He healed the woman who had been hemorrhaging for years and went and wasted all of her money on doctor bills and still got no help. And she reached out and touched Jesus' garment and was healed in Capernaum. It was Peter who lived in Capernaum whose mother-in-law had a high fever. And if you want to get in good with your wife, do something nice for her mother. So Jesus calls Peter to be his follower and he brings healing to his mother-in-law. Not a bad idea. That was Capernaum. All this comfort, all this healing, all this restoration that came to Capernaum. And now we come to this book where God is described as, yes, He is a God of vengeance. He, he's slow to anger, but there's a, there comes a point where He is going to bring restitution. He's going to bring justice and vengeance and wrath. But it's not for the sake of being punitive. It is for the sake of bringing restoration to the people of God. To bring justice to those who have been victimized by the evil working in our world. So five things we learn here about this whole matter of justice and mercy. In a fallen world, five big answers to the big questions of life. First, just consider how evil Nahum and Assyria were. Look at the words used to describe. Chapter 1, verse 3, guilty. Verses 9 and 10, they plotted against the Lord. Verse 10, uh, 10 they were drunk from wine. Verse 14, they were vile. 15, wicked. Chapter 2, verse 3, warriors. Verse 7, they had slave girls. You know what that means. Basically, their own live-in prostitute. Verse 10, they had pillaged, plundered, and stripped their neighbors. Chapter 3, verse 1, a city of blood full of lies. Verse 3, swords, spears, many casualties, piles of dead body without number, corpses. Verse 4, wanton lusts of harlots, mistresses of sorceries. Verse 4 again, enslaved nations by her prostitutes and enslaved her people by her witchcraft. 
when you consider the evil that was going on inside of Nineveh, God had to intervene. And He did. Second, consider the mercy God showed to Nineveh 150 years before by sending His prophet Jonah to call them to repentance and give them their own moment of restoration and mercy. Number three, every playground needs a guardian to handle the bullies. And the world stage, God is the guardian and He will bring justice against the bullies. Number four, God has the right to hold not only individuals, but the nations accountable. The Bible says that one day everyone will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and receive their dues. It says every mouth will be silenced and held accountable before a God to whom we must give an account. The Bible says that we will be judged by every idle word, by every thought, by every action. That God's going to hold us accountable. But not only will He hold us accountable individually, God is going to judge the nations of the world. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 40 that the nations are but dust on the scales and a drop in the bucket. As mighty as nations may seem, they are nothing compared to the power and authority of Christ over the earth. The Bible says, why do the nations plot in vain against the Lord and His anointed? Why do so many world rulers think that they are invincible and that they answer to no one? Why is it that even in the Arab world there's all this upheaval from whoever thought you would see Gaddafi evicted by his own nation? I never thought I would ever see such a thing. But even in, in a, in a, Arab-Muslim context, people still created in the image of God know that there are rights to humanity that they should have access to. And all of that, hang on, all of that reminds us that the Bible teaches before the end of time, there is going to be a great battle on the playing field of Armageddon in Israel when what's called Gog and Magog will march into Israel. And the armies of the north, perhaps referring to Russia, will join with the Arab nations and march against Israel. At that time, if you are alive during that time, I want to put a thought in your mind right now. Remember that the clouds are the dust of the Lord's feet. Remember the book of Nahum. Remember that there is a God who will take care of the bullies on the playground. Remember that there is a God who will intervene in that battle. That's how practical the book of Nahum is. That we didn't walk in here knowing a whole lot about. But as we are living in a world, and, and if you suffered the loss of a suicide in the family or a drunk driver casualty or whatever form of injustice you've ever experienced in your life, remember the book of Nahum. There is a God who is just, who is going to have justice in this world and bring it to bear on your behalf. 
both on a personal level and on an international level, there is a God who is going to bring justice. And that should bring comfort to us who have been victimized. But now the fifth thing that we learn here. The fifth thing we learn from the book of Nahum is that there, for Nahum, was a Messiah who was coming. Who would himself become the, and this is a theological term, the propitiation for our sin. The sin substitute who will take in Himself all the injustices of life. They'll all be poured out on Jesus Christ. The only way that today we have a Messiah who is able to restore our lives is because Jesus received in Himself the ultimate injustice of all history. When the nations assembled before the judgment seat of Christ and say, what do you know about injustice? You're the Son of God. What do you know about guilt and shame? What do you know about abuse? What do you know about being treated unjustly? about oppression, about racism. He will stand and He will reveal His wounds and the nations of the world will bow and recognize the One against whom they were warring and complaining, rebelling, mocking, is the One Himself who took all the injustices in His own body and died for you and I. I don't think it's any coincidence that when Jesus came and performed miracles, He went to the village of Capernaum. Whatever suffering and sin and injustice and guilt and shame that you have received in your life, through parents, through playground bullies, through a marriage that went bad. There is a Redeemer who's today, His wounds plead for us. He is the wonderful Counselor, the Comforter, the ever-present help in time of trouble the high priest who can sympathize with us in all of our infirmities and sicknesses and sorrows. And I asked if I could preach first and bring this message before we come to the Lord's table this morning because Nahum is a book that presents Christ the Redeemer. That the Father who does judge sin judged our sin in His Son. God made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that God first loved us and gave His Son to be a sin sacrifice. 
to become sin and to have the judgment of the Father poured out against our sin in the body of His Son. It's incredible. And so today, we're handed a piece of bread and a cup and said, this is my body, this is my blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What sorrows do you bring to the table today? What sorrows do you carry in on this Sunday? Let the Lord minister His redemption to you today. His healing. His love. And the comfort of knowing that whoever abused you, that justice is His. Vengeance is His. He will repent. And He can free us from the bitterness, the resentment, the unforgiveness, and minister to us. 